Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. February 24th. For most people around the world, that day marks the beginning of Russia's war in Ukraine. But for people in Estonia, February 24th also marks the day they won their independence from the Soviet Red Army in 1918, only to have that same army roll across their borders in 1940 and occupy their land until 1991. So for Estonians, February 24th is not only a time to celebrate their hard-won right to self-determination, but it's also a time to remember what happens when that right is lost. And Estonians, more than almost any other people on Earth, are determined not to lose that right again. And determined to make sure no one else does either. So I am thrilled to have on Christian Preek. He's served as Estonia's ambassador to the U.S. since 2021 and served in a number of security positions, including as the highest-ranking civil servant in the Estonian Defense Ministry. And best of all, he welcomed me to the Estonian Embassy in Washington, D.C. to speak with him in person. And that's up next. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time. Oh, well, you're, you're having me. I mean, you're, you thank you so much for, for welcoming me to, uh, I guess this is a temporary part of the embassy here in Washington. It's going to be much better in only a couple of months, but, uh, uh, but I guess it's, it's okay for, for this particular interview, but it's going to be, get better. Well, so it, it's a beautiful building. I live a handful of blocks away. What's the history of this place? I walk by it all the time. Uh, I believe it was uh, built in uh, 1903, or anyway, in, in the beginning of uh, 20th century, uh, first as a private residence. Uh, but uh, but throughout its uh, its history, it's, it's, it has had many many uses. Uh, at, at one point, uh, I was told uh, uh, it was used for, for London School of Boys. Mm. Uh, then uh, it changed hand between different uh, individuals, but at, at some time it was also, I believe, Peruvian embassy. Uh, Estonia uh, bought it in 1993 because uh, after we uh, regained our independence and uh, and uh, re-established our uh, our foreign service. Uh, it was very clear that uh, that uh, if there is one point, uh, one place in the world that uh, that we need to be strongly represented, is Washington, because uh, during the Cold War, Estonia had its uh, uh, diplomatic representation, but uh, uh, in the U.S. But it was uh, the uh, Consulate General in, uh, in New York, so our uh, uh, Consulate General there was recognized. Uh, as an equivalent to the uh, to the ambassador, and uh, and was recognized uh, by the uh, by the U.S. government as the uh, lawful uh, representative, highest representative of uh, of Estonia, the country that was uh, occupied and annexed by by the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. Can, can you explain? I was fascinated to learn this story, and and I'm not sure that many of our American or or global listeners would be familiar with it. I mean, can you explain? Exactly. When you say that the U.S. recognized this government in New York City, what do you mean? There, there were two governments essentially of Estonia. Uh, yes and no. Uh, basically, uh, Estonia became independent in uh, 1918 as a country, 
uh, as so many countries in Europe uh, that that uh, were and are a product of uh, uh, of the liberation movement uh, or anti uh, movement of uh, recognition of uh, uh, self determination of uh, of nations after the uh, First World War. Estonia also uh, was able to declare itself uh, independent uh, in 1918, but uh, uh, but in order to uh, to factually uh, enjoy independence, uh, we had to uh, to fight the war of independence, uh, which uh, which was uh, finally uh, ended by the uh, treaty between Estonia and. Uh, the Soviet Russia back then. Soviet Union had not yet been established, so it was between Estonia and Soviet Russia. Uh, Estonia, in fact, was the first uh, uh, country in the world to uh, to recognize the Soviet government uh, uh, in Russia. Uh, they uh, promised to uh, to uh, uh, recognize Estonian uh, independence and territorial uh, integrity in perpetuity. That was the uh, that was the uh, treaty uh, treaty language. But in 1940, the uh, Soviet Union uh, uh, occupied and annexed uh, Estonia along with our southern neighbors uh, Latvia and, and Lithuania. Uh, by uh, threatening the use of force, threatening the use of force, and also by bringing in their military troops, uh, uh, so Estonia uh, was forcefully occupied and annexed. Now, uh, let's, uh, now we are getting closer to the uh, United States. Uh, on twenty third of uh, uh, July, nineteen forty, so barely uh, one month after the occupation and annexation uh, processes started uh, in Estonia, the United States uh, made an, an official statement uh, that, is co- uh, that is known as Sumner Wells Declaration, uh, where the uh, United States government declared the, uh, uh, the occupation uh, and annexation of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Uh, as uh, something that they don't recognize mm-hmm. as a as a legal uh, will of uh, of our people, and as something uh, that uh, uh, that uh, cannot happen ever. And much of the world agree, right, with that assessment. And this, uh, in, in fact, uh, became the basis for something that is called the uh, the non recognition policy. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, throughout the uh, Cold War, starting from summer of 1940 until the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the United States and most of the the US allies never uh, recognized my country as being a a lawful uh, part of the Soviet Union. Uh, So even though uh, de facto where we were behind the Iron Curtain, De facto, the Soviet rule was imposed over my my country uh, uh, legally, or de de jure, de jure. Uh, uh, we were considered to be uh, still independent country, making it also possible uh, for uh, for our diplomats in the U.S. and in uh, in many other uh, uh, Western countries uh, to continue their uh, uh, activities. Of course, with the limitation that uh, that there was no uh, 
government in Estonia uh, that they could communicate with. But we did have a, a, an Estonian government in exile that uh, that uh, then also gave the uh, taskings uh, to these uh, diplomatic missions. I think most everyone would be able to recognize some parallels between Estonia's history and, and what's going on in Europe right now. I mean, one, one shocking parallel that I discovered in the course of my research is that Estonians celebrate their independence on February 24th, right? And this is the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine. So you come to the, the issue of Ukraine with a unique perspective. And, and before we get to what's going on in Ukraine now, I mean, were you surprised by the war? You served in a range of defense and security roles uh, before you came to the U.S. In, in 2021 as ambassador. What did you see while you were in those roles? What, uh, what we have been witnessing uh, in Russia, uh, certainly since uh, the late 2000s, but, uh, but I, will, I would uh, even say that uh, it started earlier. We've seen seen a very sad uh, process of uh, deterioration of uh, of uh, all these institutions and uh, and trampling on all these principles that we consider so important for uh, existence of uh, modern uh, democratic uh, uh, states within these states, but uh, but maybe more importantly for uh, the. Uh, stability and security uh, between between the countries in in the international context and at the same time we've, we've also seen uh, a, uh, a military developments and the planning and uh, capability developments that have been uh, directly aimed at uh, at the preparing for uh, uh, conflict with, uh, primarily with the West. Uh, so in this context, and, uh, and uh, having uh, followed the developments in, in Russia closely, unfortunately, uh, the, the full-scale invasion uh, did not happen as a, as a surprise to me. So how has Estonia supported Ukraine over the past 16 months? As I, as I said before, we see that uh, uh, that uh, uh, Russia started this war uh, uh, as a result of uh, long-term uh, planning, long-term uh, steps uh, that were were aimed at uh, at this uh, that kind of confrontation, and uh, and this war is uh, ultimately about the the future of uh, uh, European security. But, but even uh, even more, I would say, the future of uh, uh, international security order. This this means that uh, that Estonia has been incredibly active in uh, uh, doing whatever we can uh, uh, to to make sure that uh, that the lessons of this war uh, this war uh, make the world ultimately a safer place rather than uh, a more insecure place. This means that we have to raise the costs of this war. We have to help Ukraine uh, raise the costs to the aggressor, I mean, then help Ukraine uh, any way we can to, uh, to prevail in, the, in this war. 
and also uh, we have to work with the uh, to guarantee that there is accountability for uh, unleashing uh, that kind of war of aggression and for the uh, war crimes uh, crimes against humanity the genocide that has happened in, uh, in Ukraine we have uh, uh, we have uh, sent military aid to uh, Ukraine in excess of uh, 1% of our uh, GDP. We have uh, received uh, refugees from Ukraine in excess of uh, 5% of our own population. So to put this into uh, the US context would amount to, uh, to military aid uh, around 270 billion. Uh, refugees in, in numbers of uh, 16 million or so. There, there's been huge grassroots campaign to to support Ukraine uh, and and the Ukrainians uh, in Estonia or, or the Ukrainians back back, uh, uh, back in Ukraine. But this is uh, this is because we understand that this uh, this uh, war has uh, major. Uh, second and third order consequences as well. Not, o- not only is it tragic what happens in, uh, in Ukraine, but it's incredibly important that ultimately the aggression won't pay off. And, and part, of, part of that is building a deterrent in Estonia to keep the war, you know, as tragic as it is, as isolated as possible. How, how has Estonia built its own, made its own defenses more robust? I mean, you've raised uh, defense spending to 3% of GDP, which is sort of an astonishing figure in the context of NATO. What does that spending look like? What are you purchasing? Yeah, you, you said purchasing. That, that's, the, that's the right, right uh, uh, word to use because uh, uh, we all know that uh, when it comes to military spending, uh, uh, you, know, you, you can spend on different things. You can uh, spend on uh, military parades, you can spend on, uh, uh, you know, uh, building uh, building more and nicer uh, barracks, better food. Uh, you can have better food. You can uh, you can uh, cooler uh, medals, cooler cooler medals, yeah. uh, or you you can have all kinds of uh, other uh, fancy activities, or you can uh, buy buy stuff, as you said, or uh, equipment. Now, uh, whereas uh, I believe that uh, there is certainly a role also for uh, uh, for all these uh, nice events and so on, <laughs> we uh, we believe that uh, uh, deterrence is about readiness. Readiness is about uh, real military capabilities. And real military capabilities means that we have to invest in uh, uh, in equipment. We have to invest in uh, ammunition. We have to invest in in, in training. So uh, you mentioned the three percent uh, of GDP. Yes, our uh, uh, government uh, just uh, a few days ago uh, agreed to the to the long term defense development plan, whereby we intend to spend at least three percent of GDP uh, per year. Uh, on uh, uh, on national defense uh, for at least the next 10 years. 10 years is the maximum uh, planning horizon that we have. And and we do intend to spend uh, uh, it uh, at least 50% of it for uh, 
procurement of uh, of actual uh, uh, equipment of actual uh, ammunition. I would say even uh, with particular particular uh, uh, emphasis on uh, on ammunition because again ammunition may not be cool or sexy, but we we see very clearly uh, on what's happening in Ukraine that uh, that uh, you actually need a lot of uh, ammunition uh, before anything uh, starts to uh, happen, and we believe that this is this is uh, about real. Deterrence. Well, you've been even better deterrent, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, right? Which, which it's in its Article Five, promises that an attack on one is an attack on all. Are, are you more or less confident now in that promise than you were before the war? That's question number one here. And, and two, are you satisfied with how your NATO allies are performing uh, politically? Uh, I haven't had uh, doubt in the uh, commitment of uh, Article Five uh, since we since we be, uh, became the member of NATO. After all, our allies have a lot in stake uh, when it comes to credibility of NATO. Uh, this this is also about uh, the credibility of uh, of uh, all the NATO allies, not only. About uh, my or, or my next door neighbor, neighbor uh, credibility uh, and and defense uh, when the uh, Article Five situation emerges, so to say. No, but uh, certainly, at this point, uh, I feel that uh, that uh, NATO allies have uh, made uh, some uh, right moves during during twenty four when it comes to uh, actual. Uh, practical uh, ability uh, to fill this uh, commitment with the substance. Ambassador, some analysts say that NATO's expansion, you mentioned your membership. Some some people said that NATO's expansion in the late 90s, uh, particularly its, its northern expansion to include the three Baltic states uh, in 2004, they cite that as a possible reason for this Russian aggression. What do you make of that that argument? Yeah, I we we certainly uh, noted this argument as well, and uh, and uh, uh, quite often, if not mostly, uh, this argument uh, uh, takes or people who argue that uh, that this is the case, uh, they have the uh, perception or the view. That uh, the NATO uh, has enlarged, as if there was some kind of internal constant pressure to to make uh, NATO uh, bigger, to to subjugate uh, different nations to uh, to the let's say quote unquote to the dictate of uh, of NATO, which uh, which is. Uh, completely, utterly uh, wrong perception where these nations, including mine, have felt existential uh, uh, need to be uh, part of the defensive alliance, to to have this uh, security guarantee against against any uh, possible attack, aggression, incursion, however uh, one would uh, 
would say it's been incredibly difficult to uh, to get to agree with uh, the, the, to get the, the uh, previous uh, uh, members to agree to the enlargement. Uh, it has mostly happened with uh, with uh, built-in, uh, let's say, uh, steps and measures to uh, to address any of the concerns that uh, Russia may have had. So until very recently, uh, when when Russia uh, decided to pretty much pull out of any uh, cooperation with NATO, uh, NATO had the most uh, uh, the closest. And, uh, and uh, deepest institutional institutionalized uh, cooperation uh, among the different countries in the world with, with, with Russia, with mm. uh, NATO, uh, Russia Council, with all kinds of uh, uh, meetings and uh, cooperation formats under, under that, or in addition to that. And, and after all, NATO from 1949 has been a, a defensive uh, organization. Uh, has proven it. It has a track record to prove that uh, that it, it's not been interested in uh, in uh, uh, you know invading uh, any any of its neighbor uh, neighbor countries. So uh, that there is no substance behind this argument. Well, just to, just to press you on that. I mean, you said that NATO is designed to protect Estonia from I think you said any attack. Uh, when you look at the map of Estonia, there, there's Latvia to the south, uh, there is Finland to the north, and you have a, a hulking neighbor to the east. I mean, did, did Estonia join NATO under any other pretense than worries about Russian incursion? No, no I mean, uh, it's pretty clear that, uh, that, uh, uh, that in our corner of the world, the only uh, country that uh, that might have uh, the intent and uh, and uh, capability to threaten our uh, independence sovereignty is Russia. There is no no doubt about that, and uh, this, this is the this is the very reason why why we we made the uh, pretty much the uh, foreign policy uh, priority number one to. Uh, to become a member of this uh, defensive al- uh, alliance, uh, so uh, there is no uh, ambiguity there. But at the same time, uh, it's in—it's never been in our interest to uh, uh, to do uh, something just to uh, just to annoy or. Upset uh, Russia. This is this this is not us, but I believe very strongly that uh, that uh, if there is something that is uh, in our core existential national security interest, and even if this uh, for some reason, uh, even if Russians may for some reason consider it uh, annoying for them, we have to do the right thing. I would I would uh, caution you to keep an eye on on your northern neighbors. Those Finns are yeah, they, they are they they're are dangerous. dangerous. They're tough. <laughs> uh, on NATO, uh, would you support security guarantees after the war for Ukraine? Uh, we are uh, very clear about the need to uh, move on from 
uh, from the agreement that uh, the NATO made in uh, uh, Bucharest summit in uh, 2008, when on the one hand uh, it was uh, publicly stated that uh, that Ukraine uh, and Georgia uh, was was in the same barrel, uh, that Ukraine would uh, become a member of NATO. But uh, but since then, effectively, they've been uh, kept hostage to the other part of the of the same uh, uh, sentence, where uh, the uh, membership action plan was mentioned as the precondition for uh, for becoming ultimately the, the, mem- uh, the member, and uh, and uh, Ukraine has never been uh, given. The membership action plan. So they they were like stuck. Right. They had this promise, but uh, but there was no uh, no vehicle to move uh, towards uh, towards NATO. So we believe that uh, that we need we need to uh, move on from from this point. We we believe that we have to send a, a, a clear signal that uh, that uh, Ukraine is on its path uh, uh, towards NATO uh, uh, and. Uh, and work together with Ukraine uh, as closely as we can uh, to make sure that uh, that they uh, will become a member member of NATO. We are not uh, expecting this to have happen next Wednesday or at the Vilnius summit, uh, but uh, but we should uh, work hard so that we can uh, bring uh, a country that uh, that clearly and overwhelmingly uh, wants years to be uh, part of uh, part of the. Let's say the transatlantic uh, uh, commu- community, and that uh, that uh, probably has the uh, most capable large military at this point in uh, in, in, Euro- in Europe to have them uh, solidly in our team. Today's show is sponsored by Drizzly. Drizzly is the largest online marketplace for alcohol in North America with over 100 million customers, and they're there for life's most important moments and the people that create them. Drizzly partners with thousands of retailers in more than 1,400 cities to empower them to grow their businesses and make the good times even better. Save $5 on your first order when you click the link in the show notes. So I want to pivot here to consider some of Estonia's internal politics and then, and then finally think about uh, what lessons from three decades of independence that Estonia can, can offer Ukraine. So first, Ambassador, what are the, the demographics of Estonia? I mean, how many, how many people live there? I think it's 1.3 million. But, but what are their ethnic identities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, you mentioned the 1.3 million people. So... Uh, uh, for uh, for many Americans, uh, it's difficult to to think of a, a an independent state uh, with uh, so uh, so few people. I'm, I'm trying to think. Do you know what an analogous state, U.S. state, would be? Uh, New Hampshire, I, I, maybe. Uh, I, I would even uh, uh, mention a city. Okay. The the closest um, uh, closest uh, population. 
of a city in, in the U.S. is uh, Dallas, Texas, wow. but uh, but not with the metropolitan area. Then then they are That's way 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 beyond our our lake. Uh, but the uh, Dallas city proper is the uh, the closest uh, uh, to to Estonia. But anyway, uh, now back to the demographics. Uh, uh, despite this uh, uh, very uh, you know small number number of people. Uh, Estonia is very, very vibrant, uh, and uh, a country that uh, that uh, is uh, remarkable in the sense that uh, our uh, culture, na- nationality is Estonian. Our our language is uh, Estonian, uh, which is part of the so-called Finno-Ugric uh, language family, the closest uh, language among the independent uh, nations in the world. Uh, is uh, Finnish. Keep an eye on them. Uh, yeah, that's how they start. Uh, the uh, uh, Finns are uh, very, clo- very close to us uh, culturally and uh, language-wise. Uh, but uh, but we also have a uh, quite sizable uh, 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 Russian-speaking minority, or I would uh, I would say uh, the minority uh, that is ethnically uh, rather diverse, but whose mainly uh, main let's say preferred first language. Is is Russian? And that's about twenty five percent. It's uh, it's uh, uh, before the war started. It was slightly less than twenty five percent, but but as I mentioned, now we have uh, around five point four percent, I believe, uh, of our population uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees. So uh, uh, many of whom also uh, speak Russian. So the uh, so the the composition of the minorities uh, at least at this point has also. Also uh, changed a bit. Now uh, uh, the Kremlin often, if they talk about Estonia, they they often uh, uh, call this uh, minority population in Estonia as uh, uh, their compatriots mm. or uh, say it out, out loud Russians, which is uh, uh, I, I even consider it offending. Uh, firstly, because again, uh, this uh, uh, group of people is uh, ethnically uh, not homo- homogeneous, but uh, but there are also people from the uh, the Central Asian countries, from South Caucasus countries, certainly from uh, Ukraine, certainly from Belarus, and of course uh, uh, many many from uh, from Russia. Secondly, they are my compatriots, not. Not uh, the compatriots of uh, of, uh, uh, of Russians, because because most of them have been born in Estonia, most of them uh, are are and deeply integrated to Estonian society. Do they see it that way? I mean, do, the, do Russian speakers have there been divisions in Estonia between Russian speakers and Estonian speakers? You know, when we have uh, uh, polled the uh, different uh, you know groups in Estonian societies. Uh, society, uh, we found that there is only a very uh, small percentage of people who, for some reason, uh, consider their first let's say, sense of identity uh, uh, like uh, affiliated with or, or aligned uh, uh, with the nowadays uh, Russian state. Because most of, most of them have never lived in in in, uh, in the Russian Federation anyway. 
they they have their roots in Estonia. And, and yet, Ambassador, you're, you're, Estonia took a sort of remarkable step last year uh, to ban a handful of Russian language television channels that were popular among the, the Russian speaking or ethnic Russians in, in Estonia. For a country that's that's uh, been celebrated rightly as a beacon of press freedom, how did how did the government justify those moves? Uh, yeah, the it was very much let's say substance or merit based. Uh, mm-hmm. After all, uh, where, whereas uh, just like in a, like in any country, when uh, uh, the, the different Russian uh, state run. Uh, TV channels have, uh, you know, large share of their program is uh, entertainment, rather good entertainment, so on and so forth. But the, but uh, but the other part, the let's say infotainment mm-hmm. and uh, news part, uh, we we see that this is uh, uh, this is clearly not uh, uh, journalism. But, uh, but rather, uh, this was uh, uh, justification of uh, uh, invasion, justification of uh, of uh, war crimes and uh, genocide. But then again, uh, there's uh, uh, quite high quality uh, Russian language uh, uh, news and entertainment programs that are uh, that are offered. Uh, by our own uh, public broadcasting, but also uh, there are different uh, independent uh, Russian uh, uh, channels uh, that are either based in uh, Western Europe or Latvia or somewhere else. So there, uh, there's certainly not a, let's say, uh, news or information desert when it comes to Russian-speaking population. Ambassador, like I said, I want to I want to end here by considering some some lessons from Estonia and just want just to list some some statistic uh, statistics. Estonia's economy is projected to grow by more than three percent each year until twenty twenty eight. That's compared to around one point seven percent for the rest of the EU. Uh, out of all countries in the world, Estonia is ranked seventh on the index of of economic freedom, and its GDP per capita is the highest of any post-Soviet country. I can see, I can see you're, you're blushing with all these, these, all these uh, statistics I'm throwing at you. In fairness, it, you know, it did start out as the wealthiest Soviet Republic, but how did it keep those gains? Uh, what accounts for Estonia's success? Yeah, when, when it comes to economic growth, it's, it's always, uh, the trick is uh, how to, let's say, keep pedaling and not uh, topple down. But uh, when it comes to GDP, uh, our GDP has grown since uh, we uh, regained independence uh, in, in the early 1990s, uh, uh, more than 20-fold. Uh, and uh, as you said, we we didn't start uh, off as the, the richest. Uh, in fact, uh, the times were really poor back then. It was... Uh, it was uh, remarkable. I'm, I'm thinking of my poor uh, parents. How did they manage with uh, with the, everything uh, being at a very short supply, with uh, with uh, rationing of uh, you know the most basic uh, uh, you know uh, goods like soap, 
sugar, uh, butter. Uh, uh, when it comes to lessons, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be different. But, uh, but I would say that learn from the, from the best uh, rather than uh, being afraid of uh, competition. Uh, we should uh, rather, and any country, including Ukraine, uh, should rather embrace competition. Uh, it may be, uh, in the beginning, it may be hard, but, uh, but eventually it really pays off. And uh, no tolerance for uh, corruption mm. is something that, uh, that has uh, greatly, greatly benefited us. So, uh, so, uh, so this is this is something that uh, every country has to uh, uh, pay attention to. Uh, uh, of course, there are there are many uh, uh, many other things. The you mentioned the e Estonia and the the whole digitalization thing. Uh, one thing that actually uh, connects the two the uh, the low tolerance for corruption and uh, digitalization is this notion that we have in Estonia that you cannot bribe the computer. So, so, uh, so uh, the digitalization part has many benefits, and some. Can you yeah, can, can you explain what Estonia is? Basically, what we uh, uh, decided to do uh, in the in the nineteen nineties was uh, to embrace uh, wholeheartedly uh, the switch to uh, digital uh, uh, private sector and public sector uh, services. Our people deserve and ask for the same uh, kind of services that uh, people in all of the uh, countries are asking for. And, uh, and of course, we, we, we understood it very well that to, uh, to have uh, all the brick and mortar uh, you know, offices for different uh, government uh, uh, ministries or, or for every, every bank and every telecom company, it's it's not just uh, prohibitively expensive. We have to uh, uh, find a better way to do that. So we have uh, totally embraced the digital services. There's this uh, uh, popular questions that the Estonians ask for from uh, their international friends. Okay, uh, so we have uh, more than ninety nine percent of our public services uh, uh, fully available online. There are only two, uh, uh, two widely known, widely used uh, uh, public sector services that you cannot uh, get fully electronically. And so the question is, uh, what are the two, two services? Uh, I don't know the answer to this I quiz. The answer to this uh, quiz is that uh, it's getting married and getting divorced. And, and this has nothing to do with the technical capabilities, but only with the human nature. We don't want anyone to, uh, to uh, get married or divorced just by the spur of the moment, uh, making this one click. Uh, 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 but rather, we, we allow them to submit all the you know, documents online, uh, signed uh, digitally, uh, encrypted and everything. Uh, uh, so that it's uh, legally binding, but then we have to, uh, we ask them to actually show up to to make sure that they have thought of uh, their decision before they they actually uh, follow. Through. Have you spent any time at, at the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles in, in the U.S.? 
unfortunately, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's all that needs to be said on that. My, I was there just two weeks ago uh, uh, together with my daughter when uh, she was making her third or fourth attempt to actually get the learner's <laughs> permit. Because every, every, every previous time uh, she showed up, uh, turned out that uh, that there was something new that, uh, that she was told to obtain or bring. Uh, the computers should work for us rather than we extract right. uh, data or services uh, from from computers. We are not perfect on that, but we are we are uh, we are trying to to be uh, the developers of let's say the most uh, intelligent and the most bur- uh, and the le- least burdensome uh, digital government there is. Well, Ambassador, uh, you mentioned transparency a few minutes ago. Uh, just to just to list another statistic here, according to the the Transparency International's uh, 2021 Corruption Index, Ukraine ranks 122nd and Estonia ranks 13th. So, you know, Ukraine has this this cruel privilege of getting to or having to rebuild its democracy from the ground up. And I, I have a feeling that Estonia will be there when that, that time comes, just as they've been there uh, during the course of this war. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we intend to be there. We, uh, we are there, actually. We are there. We will be there. We intend to be there in the, in the more distant future. We... Uh, uh, we believe that uh, uh, that even at the time of uh, great tragedy and uh, and great uh, risks that uh, are involved with uh, this war, uh, we should uh, be very open-minded and, uh, and open-eyed to the uh, great uh, uh, promises and opportunities that uh, uh, that uh, uh, are there in Ukraine. Uh, as far as the uh, rankings on uh, corruption and other things. Things are concerned. Uh, what I hear, what I hear from people who uh, have been uh, in Ukraine in the past and uh, and uh, and uh, now have visited or live in, in Ukraine uh, during the war, they say that uh, there's uh, firstly on the let's say the uh, legal legal side and uh, legislative side, uh, people have been amazed by by their. Uh, uh, ability and willingness to actually uh, work on uh, uh, different, uh, you know, the legal legal acts that are uh, necessary to uh, to be tougher on uh, on corruption and so on and so forth. But uh, but maybe even more importantly, uh, people tell me that uh, uh, that uh, corruption that uh, in some cases may have been perceived as uh, let's say the uh, unavoidable evil uh, before uh, pe- people uh, equal people who are corrupt uh, when when they are discovered when they are detained and so on equal, equal them uh, to traitors I think the uh, the kind of uh, uh, purifying uh, nature of uh, these existential struggles uh, is something that uh, we should be very aware of. That uh, for nations, that kind of experiences are cr- kind of crystallizing, where 
were uh, the true uh, qualities, uh, true colors of uh, of peoples and uh, people and organization become visible. And uh, and so you're optimistic. I'm I'm inherently optimistic. If we get it right, if we not only get the the war right, but also if we think of the long term. Um, stakes. If we think of the long-term uh, uh, possibilities, uh, then we may be at the cusp of uh, one uh, great success story uh, of uh, democracies. Uh, I mean, our societies dearly need a, a real-life example of uh, of uh, uh, democracies working for their people of uh, uh, democracies uh, beating the uh, the violence and uh, and cruelness of author- authoritarian uh, regimes and i believe this this is the case where we can uh, make it happen well ambassador if, if you'll be patient with me here uh ida yeah uh, yeah, it was a pleasure to, to, to get to know you as well. Yeah. How was you close? Very, very close. Yeah. I tapped and made it talk for that. So it was, it was close to perfect. Thanks so much for tuning in. Estonia is not a perfect country. No country is, but its economy is growing as fast as almost any developed economy. It's virtually eliminated corruption in the public sector and is building arguably the most advanced and forward-thinking democracy on earth. And indicator after indicator, index after index lists it as among the world's freest societies. But the statistic that stood out most to me is this. Estonia's students rank third in the world after only Singapore and China in science, math, and reading. So the future is bright. And like I said, for all the materiel, for all the hospitality given to Ukrainian refugees and the words of support for Ukraine's war effort, I think Estonia's greatest contribution to Ukraine will come after the war, when Ukraine will have the opportunity to build their country anew. And if I were them, I'd take a lot of my cues from Estonia. If you liked this episode, and and thank you for your patience with some of the the audio issues, but if you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, a rating on Spotify, and tell a friend about us. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday. (laughs) 